Well, Richard Heinberg, welcome to the New School. We've just seen a, uh, a short video uh, that listeners to our podcasts or listeners on the radio can, can hear, and it's a wonderful summary of your book, The End of Growth, Adopting to Our New Economic Reality. But as we sit here today, an early day in September uh, 2011, um, the world economy is teetering right on the edge of um, uh, who knows what. Uh, efforts by the central banks to pump yet more paper currency into the world, uh, very different views of what direction we should take. Timothy Geithner over in Europe trying to tell the European central bankers to print more money and they're saying to him, what possible business do you have telling us what to do after what you guys did with your economy? Um, so, <laughs> and of course then the, the endless uh, series of escalating uh, environmental disasters, Fukushima and uh, the tornadoes and storms and floodings and droughts. So you connect these things. Um, how do you see the connection? Right. Um, in, in the book, I argue that there are three baskets of factors that are bringing economic growth as we've known it over the past few decades to an end. Uh, and first of all, it's important to understand that economic growth is a, a recent phenomenon. It's not, it's not the way things have always been. It's, it's a historic anomaly. And it came about because we had cheap fossil fuels, we had lots of uh, non-renewable resources that we could extract and turn into products and, uh, and, and we even developed whole systems to, to uh, increase the rate at which we were uh, uh, buying and using these products. We invented things like planned obsolescence so that stuff would wear out before it had to so we could replace it with more stuff to have more economic growth. But these three baskets of factors are uh, very briefly First, limits to debt. Uh, one, of, one of the strategies we used to increase uh, production and consumption over the 20th century was uh, consumer credit, which hardly existed at the beginning of the 20th century. Debt, of course, is, it has existed forever as long as we've had uh, uh, human communities. But, um, but consumer credit in the form that we know it today really was an artifact largely of the automobile industry because cars were a, a big consumer product. Not many people could afford to buy them with cash. And yet the, the uh, industry could make them in very large quantities very quickly. So the solution was uh, make it easier for people to go into debt to buy them. And then, of course, we had house mortgages and, and credit cards. And, and then the, the financial industry took all of this this new debt and recycled it, uh, as the video, video says, through uh, securities and, and derivatives to where it became this enormous bubble, which burst in 2008. And since then, governments have stepped in, increasing levels of government debt to try to make up for the bursting of that bubble. Actually, government debt historically hasn't risen any faster than, than other categories of debt, like consumer debt, until just th these last few years. But now, of course, it is a, it is a problem. It is a, a genuine problem. Uh, if we could count on further economic growth to increase the tax base, then, then it, it wouldn't be so much of a problem. But if, in fact, the, what I'm saying in the book is true and we've reached the end of growth, then uh, there's no way all of this debt is going to be repaid, period. So limits to debt, on one hand, the second basket of factors has to, has to do with limits to energy and natural resources in general, but especially uh, a few specific commodities. Uh, top of the list is oil, uh, but also minerals and metals that we use cheap energy to extract. Uh, up until about the year 2000, copper, iron ore, uh, bauxite, uh, everything from antimony to zinc was getting cheaper every year because even though we were depleting Earth's fixed stores of these non-renewable resources, we were using more and more cheap energy to do it so we could dig deeper, we could refine lower quality ores, we could globalize the process uh, of, of resource extraction and trade. And so, you know, we, 
strangely enough, all of these commodities were getting cheaper. Since 2000, as energy has become more expensive, all of these commodities have become more expensive too. Um, and the, the link between higher energy prices and reduced economic growth is, is now pretty well established. Uh, a number of economists uh, led by James Hamilton at uh, UC San Diego have shown that every time we have a oil price spike in the US, we have a, a recession immediately following. Um, and they've, they've dug further in to show that when, uh, when the a total aggregate, aggregate amount we're spending for oil approaches about 4.5% of GDP here in the US, the economy just shuts down in terms of, in terms of growth. Uh, and that's about where we are now. And that's one of the reasons it's so hard to, to get the economy growing again, absent more stimulus spending. The third basket of factors, as you alluded to, is uh, industrial accidents and natural disasters. We've always had natural disasters. We've always had flood, fires, earthquakes, and so on. But as we build up human infrastructure and, and human population, those disasters have greater impact. Meanwhile, we have climate change. Uh, and the results of climate change in terms of worsening uh, floods, fires, and, and droughts. And these are beginning to impact uh, economic growth, uh, partly because of direct financial costs. Uh, in 2010, the direct cost of natural disasters and industrial accidents was about $220 billion. That was a world record. This year, 2011, we passed that $220 billion mark in June. Uh, so every year is, is we're, we're ratcheting up that amount. So that's the direct cost. The indirect cost is by way of the insurance industry. The insurance industry no longer knows how to value risk because we, we don't know what the, the, the costs are going to be next year or, or the year after that. We can no longer extrapolate on the basis of our, our actuarial tables to, uh, to estimate um, what those costs will be. And without the ability to, to estimate or value risk, then uh, the, there's an, an enormous uncertainty that, that uh, enters into the, all of the financial equations. So those, those three baskets together are converging and, and we're seeing the result in real time with global economic growth, uh, especially in the OECD countries, the, the industrialized countries, uh, growth, uh, having stopped in 2008 and not really uh, getting going again despite all the best efforts of governments and central banks. Now, your, your book uh, starts early on after you summarize your argument uh, with a, uh, you start with the economic issues yep. before you reach the environmental issues. And you demonstrate to, uh, to the satisfaction of some and not to others, uh, that uh, financial disruptions are also at a critical point. Um, you begin, actually, uh, by giving people a, a crash course in the history of economics. So let's sort of, in a, with Zen brevity, encapsulate <laughs> your sure. crash course in economics. Yeah, well, this, this was a fun one. I, I, I don't have a, a background in, in economics, uh, but um, I spent many years uh, uh, informally studying anthropology, and so it's, it's with the anthropologist's eye view that I've, I've looked at the history of economics. Uh, most economists assume that econ economic history begins with barter, but there's no anthropological evidence for that whatsoever. Uh, human economies began as, as gift economies, hunter-gatherer societies, people just basically shared everything they had and there was a, sen a sense of mutual indebtedness that no one would ever try to, to, to disentangle because to do so would be to, to rip at the, at the warp and woof of, of society itself. Um, but trade did exist in hunter-gatherer societies. Trade was confined to relations with strangers, people outside the immediate community. Within the immediate community, there was every incentive to share. But with strangers, one traded. Trade is an inherently competitive 
enterprise because, of course, you're trying to get the better part of the deal and so is the, so is the other party. Um, and so the history of economics is really the history of the gradual erosion of the, of the gift economy and the gradual expansion of the trade economy. Uh, and the invention of money to facilitate trade was a, a key part of, of that history. Uh, and then uh, one can trace that closer and closer to the present with the emergence of, of banking and, uh, and all sorts of investment practices and instruments and institutions uh, really billowing out uh, just over the course of the last uh, century or two to the point where we, we have you know, but you, the economy as we see it today. Modern, modern economics writ large for you starts with Adam Smith, more or less, right? Uh, right. Um, <clears throat> well, Not super modern, but I mean sort of industrial age economics starts with Adam Smith. Yeah, so. and Adam Smith was living at the beginning, unbeknownst right. to him, right. of the Industrial Revolution. Right. And so a economics as a, as a discipline, I, I, w I don't call it a science, but as a, as a, uh, a, a study, economics has grown up within this anomalous historic interval of cheap fossil fuels and economic growth. And so the idea became internalized into economic theory that economic growth is normal and that it can, in fact, go on forever. What the economists did was attribute uh, all of this economic expansion really to the market rather than to the factors of production that start with energy and, and raw materials. Uh, again, I, I, I look at this from the outside as, as someone who's studied uh, uh, resources, you know, uh, physics mm -hmm. uh, for, for many years. And, you know, it's, it's pretty obvious from that standpoint, energy is, is at the heart of everything. Without energy, nothing happens. And so with lots of cheap energy, of course, you're going to get the opportunity for economic expansion. But somehow economists only look at energy as being a... Um, a, a commodity input to the the economic process, and for them, the market is the center of the economic process. But even so, in those early days of laissez-faire economics, with which Adam Smith is associated, the the invisible guiding hand of the market, you point out that John Stuart Mill, the great you know English philosopher was saying, actually, we have to recognize there will be limits to growth, that yes. after growth that will come to the stable state. So some people were saying that, even at that point. That's right. Yeah. Uh, 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 Thomas Malthus also was an early economist who, right. who was uh, of that view. It was a common view in those mm -hmm. days, and it was really not until the 20th century that that, that idea of an eventual steady state economy mm -hmm. was kind of expunged from mm -hmm. economic theory. So then what happened in the 20th century? Well, in, 20th, in the 20th century, we get, uh, well, of course, leading up to the 20th century, we have the appearance of Marx, who's the right. most influential economist of the 19th century. You say he threw a bomb through the window of Adam Smith's house. That's right. Yeah. yeah. I mean, he, 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 he said essentially, well, the, the, the system which he named capitalism, he said that it was inherently unsustainable, that it had contradictions embedded at, it, at its core, that... Uh, the wealthy capitalists would get wealthier and wealthier, and as everyone else is impoverished, then uh, there's no demand for the products of the industrialists, and so the whole, the whole system collapses, and of course, as people become impoverished, they also rise up to overthrow uh, the capitalists. You have a wonderful quote, uh, a saying in Russia now that everything Marx said about communism was wrong and everything he said about capitalism was right. That's right, yeah. 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 That's an increasingly widespread yeah, view. Right, right, yeah. right. Um, so at the beginning of the 20th century, there's uh, every evidence that Marx's views are, are becoming more and more influential. Yeah, there's a return of, of Marxism. It's very interesting. In fact, there was a book recently called Marx Was Right. Yes. Yeah, yeah. It's a, it's a fascinating, as an anthropologist, you must appreciate this, this resuscitation of Marx's, you know, contribution even in the face of the collapse of communism. Right. Most, very most, striking. Most of, yeah. of the respect for his contribution, though, these days is for his critique of capitalism. Right. And, mm -hmm. um, but it was, it, it was a very trenchant mm -hmm. critique, yeah. and, and it turned out to be absolutely right. 
Um, and he emphasized the instability of the capitalist system. It's another point yes. that you make, that it wasn't only that the, the poor would rise up, but that it was a fundamentally unstable structure. Yes, yeah. he said it was prone to booms and, and busts. Right. And, uh, and which is, of course, what, what we saw in the, in the 19th century right. and, and even, uh, even more so now. Right. So at the beginning of the 20th century, there's, there's great concern that uh, Marx's uh, views will, will become more widespread. And so uh, the, uh, the sort of laissez-faire uh, capitalist uh, um, economic um, system goes through a, uh, a, uh, a makeover uh, with the, the progressive era, the progressive reforms and the idea of a progressive income tax and various regulation, uh, government regulations on the market. Uh, and, and then, of course, with the, with the Great Depression, we have the, uh, the uh, introduction of Keynesian uh, economic ideas. The government should spend its way out of, of recessions uh, to create demand, therefore um, uh, bringing, the, bringing the system back to a condition of, of economic growth. And so right now, as, as we speak, uh, as the presidential campaign develops, you have the neo-Keynesians like Paul Krugman against the von Hayek Aust Austrian school of, ec of economics. Uh, you know, Ron Paul and, and all the rest. And it's being acted out in real time in the right. midst of this crisis where, you know, there is an authentic critique of the Keynesian solutions, which were widely accepted for decades, right? They were accepted up until the 1970s. Right. And, and then uh, uh, there was a, a, a revolution in economic circles. Uh, Milton Friedman. So. Neoliberal, yeah. it's, it, it's yeah. generally known as. Uh, Milton Friedman, the, the monetarists and, and all the rest mm -hmm. came into vogue. Uh, the Reagan-Thatcher revolution. Mm -hmm. uh, and, and, and they certainly held sway until 2008. And then, of course, with the collapse in 2008, there was a brief resurgence of, of Keynesianism. And as you say, the two are, are in a, uh, a, a real battle right now. Uh, for the heart and soul of not only this country but but many others, and I, I, my argument in the book is that they're all wrong. And what you say they that they're where they're wrong in common is that they both assume unlimited growth. Exactly. Yeah. And that's the key point. The key point is that we have these two philosophies that are playing themselves out: the Keynesians and the von Hayek uh, Austrian school, you know, folks. And one believes in hard currency. The you know, the Austrian school and the other believes in soft currency and spending our way out of uh, uh, recessions and depressions, but they both assume unlimited growth. Right. And, and so your book is really a fundamental critique of both of the two major schools and allying yourself with the new school of ecological economics, right. uh, Gus Speth and David Corton and many, many others, who are trying... And Herman Daly, yeah. of course, who are trying to forge a new approach to economics. Yeah. Well, the evidence is 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 I think clearly against both the neoliberal and the uh, the Keynesian uh, uh, prescriptions because we we've seen over the past uh, three years it, uh, absolutely unprecedented levels of government and borrowing and government borrowing and spending, and yet the the recovery, such as it was was very anemic, and we can't afford much more of the same. On the other hand, every country that has uh, instituted uh, austerity measures, which is basically what the, the, uh, the free marketers are, are proposing as a solution, cu cutting government spending, uh, all of those countries that have adopted austerity measures have seen plummeting levels of economic growth, and we're talking about uh, Greece, Ireland, Portugal, so on. So, which sets up for huge social unrest. Yeah, yeah. So, what, what is the answer? Yep. That's that's what everyone is saying because it, evidently these are the only two uh, uh, solutions available. Um, so, what is the answer? Well, the answer is <laughs> we we need to uh, we need to to find entirely new goals and as how a society. Do you do that? Uh, well, best way 
to start would be to dethrone GDP altogether. Gross domestic product. Yeah, yeah. It's, a, it's basically a measure of economic growth. The, Which, the as you total. point out, is clinically insane. In right. other words, you have earthquakes, you have hurricanes, you have disasters, and GDP goes up because yeah. of the spending on them. Yeah, it's a perverse so indicator. no relationship to happiness or social well-being. Right, right. And it's been criticized for decades on, on that score. There, uh, you can go to YouTube and find a wonderful film clip of Robert F. Kennedy in 1968 talking about how what, what was then called uh, gross national product was a, a perverse indicator and that we needed to be focusing on you know, the quality of our community and, and, and health care and all of these other things rather than just economic growth per se. So the, the, the critique has been there for a long time, but now, of course, we, we've gotten to the point where we can't increase GDP in, in real terms. So it's not just a matter of, of um, you know, would it be better if we did something else? We, we can't keep doing what we're doing now, so it, we, have to, we have to explore the other alternative. You know, we, we talked over lunch. Uh, one of the books that influenced me on this subject is an extraordinary book by Bernard Litauer called The Future of Money. Yeah. He was one of the guys who invented the euro, which uh, he may have second thoughts about now. <laughs> but um, but he, uh, uh, he gives a central place, and you give a significant place, uh, to the nature of money in our time. Uh, uh, Basically, you call it debt-created currencies or something like that. And he mm -hmm. calls them fiat currencies based on debt uh, uh, that are sort of invented out of thin air by central banks. But they're, they're based on lending into the world. And therefore, they require growth in order to keep paying the interest on the loans that creates yeah, money. Yeah. And so uh, you speak at some length of the importance of local currencies that are not non-debt-based, non in other words, that are created as a form of social exchange. Um, but I'm curious, uh, uh, because I think this issue of the nature of money is so critical, uh, and we can go back to the environmental issues in a little bit, uh, what is the difference? You, you say we might use a non-debt-based currency as one approach to this. Right. And my question is, what is the difference between a non-debt-based currency and what the federal government is doing now, which is essentially zero interest rates? In other words, isn't a zero interest rate economy essentially a non-debt-based currency in a way? And if you, if instead of lending to banks, you lent to people at zero interest rate, wouldn't that be the equivalent of creating a non-interest-based uh, currency? I'm, I'm yeah, yeah you're that. right. And, and uh, I have to say my, uh, my views on, on the subject have changed a little bit just since mm -hmm. writing the book. Uh, I'm, I'm currently reading a, a wonderful book by a, a, an anthropologist named David Graeber, and uh, the book is called Debt, the First 5,000 Years. Mm -hmm. and, uh, and in it, he, he argues very persuasively that all money is debt, mm -hmm. even gold and silver. In, in mm -hmm. effect, if you look at it from a social standpoint, re represents uh, debt. But the, the, the charging of interest is, is the key. And if you have debt-based money uh, and... Uh, and the requirement of pay, payment of interest, then you have a prescription for also the requ requirement of endless economic growth in order to avoid um, default and currency collapse. Uh, so yeah, if um, some system of direct credit clearing where we create money as we need it, and, and I, I would favor some form of currency creation that's more democratic, that doesn't rely on uh, banks and central banks for the, for the oversight of the, of the process, uh, especially if, if, if there's uh, interest involved, then um, over time, inevitably, the wealth of society gets sucked up to the level of the, uh, you know, those who are creating the currency, so which if, is the if, banks. If you don't have interest, how do you allocate capital efficiently? <clears throat> um, 
we, we are not going to have the same kind of economy going forward that we have now. That's, that's, I think that's, that is, the, that is the, uh, the hurdle, the intellectual hurdle that uh, is very difficult for most people to, uh, to straddle. Um, the, the kind of investment that is uh, going to be useful in, in the future is going to be much more locally based and it will be much more based around specific projects rather than uh, the uh, uh, development of capital per se. Well, that seems to me like a soft point in the argument. I mean, I mean, just because you're a very rigorous thinker, you're an analytical thinker. Mm -hmm. And so when I asked you that, you paused for quite a while. You were kind of thinking through the answer to that. But your response that we're going to need local investment, okay, at yeah. a certain level we will. But I'm not sure that either of us really believes that global finance and global technologies in this highly interrelated world can really disappear. And it seems to me that, uh, and I've had colleagues, uh, uh, friends that I've been having the conversation with about interest who are eager to see a, a non-interest-based economic system, a book that we were discussing called Sacred Economies that mm -hmm. also addresses this. But I, I can't figure out, in the absence of interest, how you make reasonable allocations of capital. And I'm, I'm not willing to assume that we go to such a local economy just based on local trade that it really works that way. It seems to me, um, it seems to me, now we were talking about Bernard Litauer uh, and you reference him with respect to local currencies in his book, The Future of Money, but he proposed, as, as, as we mentioned, a global currency called the Terra, right. which rather than being based on gold and silver would be based on a basket of commodities. So it would be based on something real. Now presumably you could have a Terra based on a basket of commodities which can't be manipulated and it's not debt-based, but nonetheless there's nothing that prevents you from charging interest on a Terra. You know? Right, the, so, the, 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 uh, the, the tying of the value of the currency to a basket of commodities really doesn't address the question of how the commodity is, or how the, how the currency is issued. No, it doesn't, but don't you think that's something that one could figure out? Yeah. In other words, we're talking about really, the reason I wanted to focus on this money issue yeah. early on is that because we both agree, we both agree that, that liberalism and Australian Austrian economics, yeah. the, 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 the big debate now, is based on a premise that's not true, which that this can't go on forever. Growth can't go on forever. So then that takes us to the fact that we also both agree that uh, the fiat currencies are based on debt, and that's a central part of the problem, right. right? So then we get to what kind of currency do we have? And yes, local currencies help. Uh, they help at a local level. But then what kind of national currency and what kind of global currency? And if it's not tied to something, and we agree that you can't go back to gold because there's too much activity in the world for that to make sense. So if it's not tied to something, you have floating currencies that based on nothing of some kind. So right. it's a critical question. Yeah, well, the, 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 uh, it's important to separate the... the uh uh, functions of, of money as a medium of exchange, as a store of value, as a measure of value. And for the, the function of measure of value and store of value, then, then the question of what you base the currency on is, is critical, whether mm -hmm. it's a basket of, of commodities or uh, gold or silver or whatever. But, but it's, it's not necessary actually to be exchanging the commodities or the gold and silver right. in order for it to, to function in that right. way. It's also possible to disentangle those functions in, by way of having different kinds of money for different purposes. Mm -hmm. um, uh, for example, there's a, 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 a web-based Mm -hmm. currency called Bitcoin yeah. that's, that's gaining currency, if you will, uh, these days. And it's, it's not really based in anything except direct credit clearing, the, tr the trust of, the, uh, of, of those who, who use it. Uh, and uh, there's no reason that we, we couldn't use 
uh, currencies uh, of, of that nature for most transactions, but they're not go going to that kind of currency wouldn't necessarily work as a store of value or a measure of value, but it wor works very well as a medium of exchange. And as Litauer points out, frequent flyer miles are a kind of currency, and so right. are points that you get on credit cards. In other words, there are all kinds of new measures of exchange that are growing up because yeah. of the problems we're having. Yeah. So let's go back to, I, I just thought it was useful to get into the economic argument, which is so central in your book. But uh, you've, you talked about why economic growth has stumbled. But let's talk now about the environment, uh, chapter three in your book, and the environmental externalities, and why they are such a central dimension of the end of growth. Sure. Yeah. Well, as as I was saying earlier, you know, the, the cost of environmental disasters is is rising uh, very dramatically. But mm. what um, this has real impacts uh, now f is in the in the area of food, uh, because we're seeing uh, not only rising costs of production as a result of rising rising energy prices. But um, destruction of whole crops, in, as is happening now in, in uh, the southwestern part of the U.S., in Texas, a record drought um, happened last year in, in Russia. Um, it, it's also happening in, uh, in, in Africa currently. Um, as these, these weather impacts from climate change uh, worsen, uh, we're, we're going to see uh, food shortages uh, increasingly. And for that these will impact people in poor countries, of course, first. Uh, we Americans don't see it as much because we spend such a small percentage of our income on mm -hmm. food. But in parts of the world where people spend half or more of their income on, on food, a 50% increase in the food price Mm -hmm. means the difference between eating and, and starving. Mm -hmm. um, so this, this is creating more and more social unrest in countries uh, where the, there are lots of young people with, uh, without jobs, uh, North Africa, Middle East. Uh, and, uh, and as economies weaken in currently uh, wealthy countries like ours, we're going to be seeing a, a much larger proportion of the population that's, that's uh, uh, having difficulty meeting basic, basic human needs. So the environmental impacts, uh, we're accustomed to thinking of them as, as affecting you know, the polar bears and the honeybees and so on. Um, and that's true, but it's also affecting the species we care most about, and mm -hmm. increasingly so. You, you talk about the relationship between the price of oil and fertilizers and so forth and the food supply. So that's a central dimension of the food crisis. Sure. Right? Yeah. Yeah. yeah, well, we've created a food system uh, that is uh, overwhelmingly dependent on, ch on cheap mm -hmm. fossil fuels, and especially oil, for mm -hmm. transporting inputs to the farm, for transporting outputs from the farm, ultimately to the, to the consumer's mm -hmm. plate, uh, for the manufacture of not only fertilizers, but also pesticides and herbicides, so that about seven calories of fossil fuel energy are invested in the mm -hmm. production of every calorie of, of food on, on average. Um, so that's, that's a, a system that's overwhelmingly uh, vulnerable to exactly the kinds of conditions that we're seeing unfolding. The uh, higher uh, energy prices and, uh, and on one hand and on the, of course on the other hand the declining environmental conditions. You also talk about the crisis in, in uh, drinking water and water supply. Yeah, yeah. Uh, most countries are seeing problems with availability mm -hmm. of, of fresh water now and, and the kinds of uh, uh, weather uh, problems that are that, that are leading to that are, uh, of course, increasing as a result of, of climate change. Mm -hmm. So, and just when one thinks about food, water, sort of a third critical uh, thing is air, air we breathe. But as we increase this carbon uh, use and toxic chemicals and so on and so forth, uh, there's still air. But uh, what what it is that we're breathing, uh, along with food and water, uh, are 
is problematic. In that. Right. And well, of course, the air quality in terms of contaminants, but right. even, and this is getting very little uh, attention, but uh, the, the proportion of the atmosphere that consists of oxygen mm. is actually declining. Yes, I've read that. <laughs> yeah. Right. As, because we're, we're, we're burning mm -hmm. uh, uh, not only fossil fuels, but mm -hmm. forests and... and uh, mm -hmm. Uh, basically everything we can mm -hmm. we can burn on the on the planet, and that's taking oxygen mm -hmm. out of the atmosphere. So the food we eat, the water we drink, the air we breathe, yeah. these these become very personal as as consequences of what we're facing. Right, it's pretty it's, fundamental. You know, uh, up until very recent times, the whole environmental discussion was about what would happen to our children and grandchildren. Mm -hmm. uh, and I think at this point, it, that's, that's very wrong-headed. Mm -hmm. uh, e even those of us in our, our 60s mm -hmm. and 70s are going to see profound changes mm -hmm. in, our, in our lifetimes mm -hmm. it, because it's happening now mm -hmm. in, in real time. So uh, there are those who argue, in fact, you and I both know that our, our good friend Daniel Jurgen from the uh, What's the name of this institute? Uh, uh, Cambridge of, Energy Research Cambridge Associates. Energy Research Associates had a piece in the Wall Street Journal today called There Will Be Oil. For decades, advocates of peak oil have been predicting a crisis. They've been wrong at every turn, says Daniel Jurgen. And um, so he makes uh, an argument, which I know you've seen, uh, that essentially you're wrong. Yes, um, Daniel Jurgen, whose whose clients, of course, all are all are uh, mostly in the in the oil industry itself, um, <clears throat> has uh, well. Let let me restate the the subtitle for his his mm -hmm. uh, uh, his essay. I w I would say that for decades, some people have forecast. Uh, uh, problems with oil supply, and other peoples have people have said, "Oh, don't worry, be happy. There's plenty of oil." Mm -hmm. And up until uh, about three decades ago, the cornucopians, let's call them, were right. Mm -hmm. um, there was plenty of oil, and the naysayers were proven wrong again and again. Mm -hmm. Since about 30 years ago, we've seen country after country uh, uh, peak and decline in terms of its oil output. Mm -hmm. We've seen world oil discoveries declining. And uh, Daniel Jurgen personally has made uh, uh, many forecasts over the last decade about global oil production and prices that have been at, at serious variance with reality to, up to the point where, I think it was 2004, 2005, uh, the price of oil was, was rising up through you know, $50 a barrel, $60 a barrel, $70 a barrel unprecedented price levels, and Daniel Jurgen was saying, oh no, it's going to fall back to 40 and stay there. So uh, several commentators on the internet suggested that we, we start using a new uh, unit for oil prices called the Jurgen at <laughs> $40 a barrel. And, and so you could pick up the newspaper any given morning and see how many Jurgens oil is trading for. Uh, that's that's sort of his reputation okay. as a forecaster these days, and he, of course he's the, the man is is brilliant in terms of his understanding mm -hmm. of oil industry history. Mm -hmm. uh, but I think his his new book, The Quest, is really just an uh, an effort to mm -hmm. to to uh, rehabilitate mm -hmm. his his credentials mm -hmm. as a as a forecaster. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So uh, you talk in the book about another argument that people make in addition to the argument that there's going to be plenty of oil, like Daniel Jurgen, is that uh, efficiency and substitutions will save us. Right. You're not so sure. Yeah, well, certainly there are other sources of energy that we can substitute for oil. And there are substitute resources we can use for, for many things that are depleting. But in most cases, the substitutes are inferior from an economic standpoint. Um, it would be nice to think that, that we can replace fossil fuels on a one-to-one -one basis with renewable energy sources and do it cheaply and quickly and then continue with economic growth in the future. Uh, we did a study at Post Carbon Institute a couple of years ago to see if 
that would likely be true. We, we looked at 18 different energy sources and compared them across 10 criteria, including the energy that's returned on the process of, uh, of energy production. You know, it takes energy to get energy, so what's the ratio? Are you getting more energy back than you, than you put into the process? If so, how much? The environmental costs, the location, the uh, scalability, and, and so on. And we couldn't identify uh, a, uh, a scenario in which alternative energy sources like solar, wind, geothermal, uh, microhydro, um, uh, tidal, wave power, and so on, in any combination, could fully make up for fossil fuels. So uh, m my conclusion from that study is that we will have less energy as time goes on. Mm -hmm. So. As you, you look at that, uh, your fifth chapter is essentially about uh, winding down and, and the demographics of it and uh, the geopolitics of it and the impact on uh, development of poorer economies and so forth. So given that your assumption is that this is happening and maybe even happening now, even faster than people thought, right. what does that wind down look like? Mm. Well, if we don't plan for it, it doesn't look very good. One, yeah. of, uh, <laughs> one of my findings in writing the book, um, and I have to say in the process of writing the book, I learned a lot. I inter interviewed a, a number of, of people, including uh, former managing director of J.P. Morgan and, and a uh, former top Wall Street uh, hedge fund manager, uh, a number of economists and so on. One of the things I learned in writing the book is that as, as huge as oil depletion and climate change are as problems, uh, they're a, a little bit further off and they're slower acting than the volatility of the financial industry. Mm -hmm. And uh, the volatility of the, of the financial industry is a problem that we could solve over the course of a few years um, by redesigning our economic system and currencies and so on. But over the short term, there is the, the very real prospect that volatility or even collapse within the financial system itself could lead to a, a general collapse of society. Mm -hmm. Now that's the worst case of scenario, mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. but it's certainly not to be ruled out. And this, this could happen very, quite rapidly in comparison with these, these, these you know, longer acting systemic problems. You so, actually quote... Uh a report from the German military, I believe, saying that they see this as a real problem and that if that happened, that the social consequences were not predictable. In right. other words, we happen to be talking at a moment <laughs> when this is actually being taken seriously as something that could happen soon. Yes, within uh, weeks or months. Within weeks or months. Yeah. And, uh, and it's considered by very mainstream sources to be uh, a tremendous uh, risk. Yes. And yeah. nobody knows what to do about it. That's right. Yeah. yeah. We have historic examples. Uh, one, one of the more recent ones is, is Argentina. Right. Around the turn of, of the 21st century, right. uh, went through a currency collapse. And uh, you know, nobody could get paid, so the police stopped working. Public order breaks mm -hmm. down. You can't, you can't, credit cards don't work. You can't buy food. So. Uh, Argentina turned into a barter economy, mm -hmm. and, uh, and uh, it was a very, very difficult time. The country is still not back to normal, if, if you will. And it was an isolated example. So life was going on as normal around Argentina. It was just a local breakdown. What happens if a much larger system breaks down? So what are the geopolitics of a broader breakdown as you see them? Um, <clears throat> Well, there are enormous geopolitical implications of all of the things that we're talking about, climate change, resource scarcity, and also uh, uh, currency uh, and, and financial problems. And, and we're seeing all of these play out. We're seeing increasing uh, resource rivalry among uh, uh, many nations, but particularly the U.S. and China. Uh, and, and also Russia, if, you, if we take into account the, the rivalry around the possible uh, fossil fuel resources in the Arctic. Um, we're seeing uh, increasing 
uh, uh, rivalry around currencies because under current conditions, every, every country wants to see its currency devalued. Mm-hmm. It wants its currency to be worth less in comparison to other currencies so that it can export more. And so we have uh, you know, the, the euro, the dollar, the, the Chinese yuan, all competing with, e- with each other to, uh, to achieve a lower value is, uh, in comparison with the, with, with the others. Uh, historically, where we've had currency wars, we've, we've then seen uh, resulting from that trade wars, and in some cases, shooting wars. Uh, now, are we on the brink of a, a you know a global shooting war resulting from all of this? I don't see the indication of it now, uh, but these these kinds of of situations have their own internal illogic, if you will, and and it's it's pretty hard to predict more than mm-hmm. more than a few months out. You know, you cite one source on on what's happening that I've found really interesting. John Williams' website, Shadow Statistics or Shadow Stats. And you have these beautiful growth uh, graphs that you take from his site, which show that the real unemployment is far higher than we think, and the real levels of growth are far lower than we think. Uh, It's an extraordinary... uh, resource that people don't talk about, uh, and also that the real levels of inflation are higher, if yeah. I remember correctly. So yeah. um, uh, how seriously do you take his data? Do you think that he's right in his critique of... Uh, well, he's, uh, he has a, a, a professional background right. in, in government statistics. Yeah. So his, his data are very good. Yeah. He's, he's applying different criteria from those that are used mm-hmm. in the official government statistics. And in many cases, there are criteria that we used to use right. uh, two or three decades ago. But then we started collecting and presenting data. The government started collecting and presenting data in different ways so that it would look better. That's right. Uh, for example, with, with unemployment, when, when he says that real unemployment levels now are in the range of 16, 17, 18 percent, he's simply using the, the uh, collection methods, presentation methods that were, that were commonly in use three or four decades ago. Mm-hmm. But we, we've changed that because now, of course, to say that, that we have 16, 18 percent unemployment would be politically very problematic. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So... Uh, Let's talk about managing the transition, your chapter, a chapter after the, your conversation about the wind down. Um, uh, how, do you, how do you envision us managing the transition? What would be the best case scenario for how we should manage the transition to a sustainable economy? Mm-hmm. Well, in the best case scenario, it's managed from the bottom up and the top down at the same time. Mm-hmm. In the best case scenario, we would have uh, you know, rational actors at the top mm-hmm. of government understanding that, that growth is over and, and shifting from uh, pursuit of GDP growth to a pursuit of increased quality of life. Mm-hmm. Uh, shift the indicators and, and, uh, and shift investment so that we are providing education, for example, for young people to go into farming, education and economic opportunity, because we're going to need millions of new farmers over the course of the the next 20 years as we shift from fossil fuel-based industrial agriculture to more uh, locally-based, less input-intensive agriculture. And that shift will happen whether we plan for it or not. Obviously, it's going to go much better if we plan for it. So if the government were doing those kinds of things, uh, providing uh, employment in, in the building of the infrastructure that we'll actually need in the future, rather than continuing to build more highways and infrastructure that simply won't even be useful for us in the, in the, in the fantasy future. Um, you wrote that Sonoma County has decided to let its roads go back to gravel because they can't afford to keep paving. 90% of its roads, that's right. Yeah. Yeah. And that was announced in the newspaper a, a year ago. Um, just went unnoticed. But that's not unusual. That's, that's happening all over the country mm-hmm. because t- the tax base is eroding. And so local governments are hit hardest. They can't c- 
create money the way the, the U.S. Treasury can or, the, or the, uh, the Federal Reserve. So they have to balance their budgets as their tax base declines. They have to cut back. And one of the things they're doing is cutting back on, on road maintenance. Mm -hmm. And this field of ecological economics that we referenced at the start, uh, how do you see it maturing? I mean, do you think there's a real body of thought there that is going to prove effective as a way of thinking about yeah. the economy? It's not sufficiently developed yet. Yeah. Um, I think ecological economics provides a, a, a basis for a, a new way of thinking about economics. What it does first is, is take uh, physical reality seriously. <laughs> and conventional economics really doesn't. Uh, conventional economics assumes that the environment is just a subset of the economy. It's just a set of resources that we can substitute uh, infinitely and that are just an in input for the production process and for the market. Whereas the ecological economists start from the, uh, the, the assumption that the market, the economy, is a subset of the environment. Mm -hmm. Always has been, always will be. If we have no functioning environment, if we have no functioning ecosystem, we have no economy. That's where we have to start. We have to start with an understanding that uh, we can't extract uh, renewable resources any faster than nature can replenish them. We can't uh, believe that we can build a, a, a sustainable economy with ever-increasing rates of extraction of non-renewable resources. We can't. So ecological economics takes those basic realizations and uses them as the bedrock now, does it, does it build from those a, a, a fully realized alternative uh, set of economic theories? No. Mm -hmm. it, hasn't, it hasn't had the, uh, the opportunity to do that. Uh, uh, there haven't been enough theorists. There hasn't been enough time to do that. But, but we have to start from that basis because otherwise we're, we're, we're working from, uh, from illusion or delusion rather than reality. Who do you regard as the three most important ecological economists for somebody just starting to read in this field? Well, you have to start with Herman Daly. Right. Uh, he's, he's, uh, he's the granddaddy of mm -hmm. ecological economics. Mm -hmm. And uh, Robert Costanza has, has written uh, uh, a great deal and also uh, started the first university program mm -hmm. on ecological economics. Mm -hmm. And then um, who's our fellow... Uh, yeah, Josh Farley, who is the co-author with uh, Herman Daly of the textbook on ecological mm -hmm. economics, is, is also brilliant. Mm -hmm. Great. Um, so the, the last chapter really gets down to the fundamental question, which is what individuals and communities can do. So you're in Santa Rosa, we're in West Marin, there's, as I said, this necklace of organizations like going up through the Pacific Northwest, same kind of thing in the Northeast clusters in the south, around the Great Lakes. There are all these clusters to say nothing mm. of uh, other countries, but just a tremendous amount of vitality and energy. Uh, but I've noticed, at least in West Marin, where we have a vibrant transition towns movement, that we've had a lot of interesting energy, but I haven't seen us get real traction about organizing. For me, our failure to really develop a, a, a fully viable local currency, and I give great credit to Dick Kirschman who created our you know, $3 local mm -hmm. thing, but, th but that's the, the model of that is the tourists will buy it and take it out of uh, you know, uh, circulation, the $3 <laughs> pieces, and that then money will go to nonprofits, which I think is truly great. Yeah. But that's a different function from uh, oh, really? all the people yeah. who are out of work in West Moran and who need a means of exchange for right. themselves when they can't get access to dollars, which is what a real local currency can do. Yeah. So what is your sense of... Uh, what are the priorities for on-the-ground, local, community-based organizing that as the crisis deepens, if it deepens, mm -hmm. if you're right, uh, we're going to need? What are the priorities? Yeah, well, the first priority is to satisfy people's basic needs. Right. 
And um, just a, uh, three or four weeks ago, I had the opportunity to uh, uh, speak at the uh, national conference of an organization called Community Action Partnership. Mm -hmm. uh, it's the umbrella organization for the community action agencies, which uh, have chapters all across the United States. They administer the anti-poverty funds mm -hmm. for millions of, of poor people uh, for whom this makes all the difference between you know, survival and, and right. not. Uh, the Community Action Partnership has just issued a, a new report, it's two or three years in the making, uh, and in that report, they essentially take the message of the end of growth to heart. Wow, that's a big deal. Yeah, it's a big deal. It's a really big deal. Yeah. yeah. And uh, so the folks at Community Action Partnership uh, are, are seeing the future as, as we are envisioning it in this conversation, mm -hmm. and they're saying, what can we do to support people in local communities mm -hmm. in, in terms of finding work for them, providing food, providing housing? And we're having conversations about uh, strategies like um, talking to local governments to find out how to get around zoning ordinances and, and use eminent domain to, uh, in every neighborhood of every community where there are houses that are vacant and owned by banks, make those houses available to the community as community centers. Fantastic. So we can be growing community gardens in the front yard and the backyard of, of those houses and, and using the, the house itself as a, as a meeting room, as a, as a food storage and distribution center, as a, as a, as a local work center where you know, some people need some work done, uh, they, can, they can barter with or hire other folks in the community who need work. Um, uh, there are al so-called alternative economic uh, uh, projects in every community around the country, whether, whether it's a local currency or a, uh, as something as mundane as a, a credit union or a food co-op or a, a, a job center or whatever. These need to become more visible within the community. Rather than being alternative, they need to be, become the mainstream because they are what we will have to rely upon as the mainstream economy begins to fray and, and disintegrate. And that could happen very rapidly. You talk in the book about the importance of credit unions. Yeah. Well, credit unions are just nonprofit banks. Right. And, uh, and so credit un many credit unions uh, invest in the community and unfortunately it's it it's not easy for individual investors to to invest locally in many cases because of security and exchange commission rules that, that prevent that we're actually post carbon Institute, we're in, in the process of publishing a book on this very subject how to get around those rules so that people who do have retirement money or, or whatever can invest mm -hmm. locally in their community and that way, rather than in Wall Street, it, 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 it supports the people and the social infrastructure that you will be depending upon uh, as, as time goes on. So there's every reason to invest locally and we just need better ways of, of doing that. But credit unions uh, um, keep more of their money typically in the local community and less of it in Wall Street. And I mean, I've been talking to you about my view of local currencies, but I'd like to hear in your economic analysis how significant, in other words, if, if, if the economy crashes during uh, the depression, local currencies emerged. Right. Uh, in Switzerland, they've had them for hundreds of years in some places. So what is your view of whether local currencies are a really critical dimension of uh, of a sustainable local economy or not? Yeah, well, local currencies, again, will, will probably ultimately be part of a nested ecosystem of currencies. Mm -hmm. I, uh, I, I don't foresee a situation where we will have a single global currency ever yeah. that you know, we will all be using. I don't, I don't even think it's necessarily a good idea. Right. Um, uh, Local currencies have, for the last few decades, been mostly a boutique phenomenon and typically difficult to get started and difficult to maintain. Yeah, very hard to maintain. Because people can't use them to pay taxes, mm -hmm. pay their mortgages, pay their rents, and so on. Uh, and 
that's what most people need money mm -hmm. for most, most of the time. Um, so they, they function uh, as a way of keeping somewhat more money in the local community. They, they help that way. They're worth getting going from that standpoint. But as the, if and when the dominant currency breaks down, having a local currency, a functioning local currency in place could mean the difference between uh, a, a completely dysfunctional economy and a seriously challenged economy. Right. <laughs> but isn't it true that absolutely you can't pay taxes or your mortgage, uh, but um, in terms of, for example, there was a recent report that the, the two, the only, when, when there was zero growth in jobs in the last month or whatever it was, last quarter, the only two, uh, the only two groups of jobs that were growing, one was uh, people working in oil or gas rigs, something right. like that. The other was home health care assistance, right. you know? So we have this enormous aging population my 100-year-old mother-in-law is now on 24-hour, you know, care. Mm -hmm. and, um, and, uh, and significant numbers of people in our community are making a living doing that kind of thing. We're also growing food out here. Uh, the co-op is accepting the local currency. It seems to me that you can't do the hard things, but a lot of the soft exchanges are enormously facilitated yeah. by a functional And those are country. also things that can't be outsourced to China. They can't be outsourced to China. That's exactly right. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, so we're going to start with some questions in a few minutes here. But um, a last question for you. In our earlier conversation, I, I discovered here you are, this extraordinarily good critical thinker uh, who has written what to me is... Uh, a tremendously important book about the end of growth, adopting to our new economic reality. Um, but I discovered in our conversation that your earliest books had a, a strong spiritual orientation. And it's interesting to me because often the people who are good on the economics and the analysis uh, come from a different point of view, a good point of view, but a different one. Mm -hmm. um, how did you make your way from an early interest, a very powerful interest in uh, the perennial philosophy as a, you know, sort of vision of uh, our shared spiritual yeah. heritage to uh, the economics of the end of growth? <laughs> well, it, as you can imagine, it was a, it was a long journey, and uh, I won't I won't bore you with the details. But mm -hmm. uh, in the early 1970s, uh, I, I was reading. Um, Simultaneously, books like *The End of Growth*, or not *The End of Growth*, but *The Limits to Growth*, Limits to growth. Yeah. 1972, best-selling environmental yeah. book of all yeah. time, and uh, and E.F. Schumacher on one hand, and then uh, Buddhist texts and all, all sorts of mm -hmm. spiritual literature on the other. Mm -hmm. I mean, you know, early 1970s. That's what that's it, what we were was reading. What was in the air? Yeah. <laughs> um, it, but my, my main interest was just to try to figure out what was happening in the world and where we were going and mm -hmm. why. And so I, became, I ultimately became a, a writer, uh, not because I felt like I had a lot to say, but because I had so many questions mm -hmm. that I, I wanted to answer. And so I, the first place I went to answer those questions was the perennial philosophy and, and uh, world mythology. My first book actually was about uh, 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 world mythology. And... Uh, uh, but as, as time went on, I began to see that the, the problems with our current society are uh, not only fundamental, but also acute. Mm -hmm. that, that we are going to have to make adjustments very, very rapidly. And it's important for us to have real-time information about how, how, how this system we've created is... is uh, uh, is doing so. I, I became more and more uh, uh, attracted as as time went on to to questions like, you know, what's happening with our, our energy resources because energy really is the, the the basis for understanding economics and 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 human history. So, as a spiritually oriented person and also a remarkable critical thinker, who has worked out 
in considerable detail the economics and the environmental dimensions of the end of growth. Do you happen to believe that there's also a spiritual dimension to the future of human consciousness that will be important to the transition you described or not? Because you could go either way on that. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Um, <clears throat> we humans need meaning. Mm -hmm. And it's, it may just be because we're so addicted to language. You know, language is all about meaning. What, is, what does this word mean? What does that sentence mean? Now, it may be that life, per se, if once we take away language, doesn't have meaning. It just is. And, and possibly that's what uh, enlightenment is all about. It's getting out of the chatter of the you know, linguistic-based consciousness. But, but to the extent that we're enmeshed in, in, the, in the verbal world, and, and that's how our brains work, we'll, we'll always look for meaning. So I, I expect that people will try to find meaning in, in the events that we're talking about, in this great transition away from, from, uh, from, from growth and apparent limitlessness to the, the future of sustainability in which we recognize nature's limits and learn to live within them. Um, and I think there's a, an important role for those who, who um, are able to articulate m meanings that are helpful to people in, in the process of that transition. Now, whether we call that spiritual or extra-dimensional or whatever, I, I'm, I'm an agnostic as far as that goes. Richard Heinberg, thank you for being with us at the New School. Yeah. Thank you, Michael.